submissions are now open. For all types of South African music to be playlisted on Radio Easter Feed. The likes of Gospel. Dance hall and reggae tunes. And house music. We don't mind the language. We don't mind the genre. So send us an email now to info at radioyesterriver.co.za. Title your email. Playlist me. Our station, our talent, our people. Our station, our talent, and our people. Butcher's Market offers the best quality, locally sourced and 100% halal meats. Visit our store at Sambury Square Mall. Contact us at 021-565-04-9 TPM for your halal meats. Hey there music lovers, looking for a place to find all your music needs? Well, look no further than Tom's, the heart of music. At our Tom's Heritage Square and Belleville stores, you can shop guitars, drums and percussion, studio and home recording equipment, pro audio and DJ equipment, pianos and keyboards. We're also the Western Cape's only authorized dealers of Gibson and Epiphone guitars. Come visit us at 65 Clayton Crust Street, Heritage Square, Cape Town, or 92 Edward Street, Tiger Valley, Belleville, and let our friendly and knowledgeable staff help you find what you need. Submissions are now open for all types of South African music to be playlisted on Radio Easter Feed. The likes of Gospel.
Brit and hip hop, hip hop. Tan basta day mag, protest met bombs in die straat. Hoeveel is al dood in die kaap? My enigste vraag is, wat zijn bereid? Ons het die genoegie as hy rit die folie daar. Wat zijn bereid? Dance hall and reggae tunes.
our station, our talent and our people. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us right here on Radio Yesterday. We listened to the song there, um, the Yerma Moegemak. Now, you must have seen actually um, the element dancing in the studio right in the tables no hot guys for that particular song here. Yeah. Your table, <laughs> <won't survive. laughs> Your uh, table would have been on the ground if I said. Uh, I do hope you're all doing well. Um, and I would like to welcome every one of you to Radio Yesterday. My name is Ivani Fritz, of course, from a youth perspective. And we, we, we in talks with the elderman J.P. Smith. He is, of course, the... MEC for um, or MMC for safety and security within the city of Cape Town. Um, if you would like to get a hold of us, contact us, WhatsApp us. You can do so via 06 4536 You can also go to our various different social media pages on Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube at Radio East River. You're also able to download our app, which is available on the, at the Android App Store and Y stores at Radio East River. You can also go check out <coughs> our website at www.radioestriver.co.za. Now, um, so this week... Uh, Alderman, uh, the various different MPs of Parliament um, debated the sonar address of our very competent, so-called um, President of South Africa, Mr. Ramaphosa. Now, there was one particular MP, the former Premier of, uh, before you introduce yourself, I just want to ask you this opinion about the, what the f- former uh, Premier of the Northern Cape and the current Deputy Chairperson and the NCOP says where, where she suggested load shedding is at the end of the world uh, because when she was living uh, under the apartheid government or back then, uh, she used to study under CARES and used to study under uh, a, a, a tree. So they're used to those types of things. What's your view, particular view, on what she had to say about that? Well, I thought the entire purpose of of ending apartheid and getting an equitable dispensation for everyone was precisely to take us forward, Mm. not to regress to where we were decades ago. Uh, Where we were decades ago was a horrible situation. Definitely. Um, For a portion of the population, pre-1994 might have been okay, but for Mm. a majority of the population, (coughs) there were many, many injustices and indignities to suffer all the time. So the whole point of 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 evolving our administration, of growing as a country, was to improve that and to improve the quality of life for the majority of people and to be stuck in load shedding since 2006, 2007. Yeah. Uh, I remember I was the ward councillor for Seapoint and when load shedding first started, we had little idea of how to handle that. And we had people trapped in lifts or in buildings where they couldn't climb down the stairs, mm. they were too elderly, the lifts weren't working. So, I mean, at that stage, we certainly didn't think that this was going to be a misery that was going to be with us for Mm. the next 18 or 17 years. Um, And I think that we've heard Ramaphosa say just about every year that this is the year we're ending it. And last year after he said it, we had our worst load shedding year on record. So I think the minister is misguided badly on this. And I think it's a core issue for many people that is shaping their thinking about whether they believe the current governing uh, administration, the ANC, is capable of government. Uh, many other factors, but certainly load shedding is one that touches everybody every day, all the time, and that includes me. I don't have uh, inverter and other things at home. I have a couple of little lights, as everybody mm-hmm. else has, and I've got a, a little a UPS to keep my, my router working, so at least I can still get Wi-Fi because I have to do meetings from home, but uh, it's a pain for everyone. Definitely. Um, 
Okay, agree with the Moscow and so just quickly introduce yourself to our listeners. And first of all, thank you so much for coming today. Um, I really do appreciate you coming out today. I do know that you're quite busy yourself, um, fighting all the taxi bosses and whatnot. So, uh, and what, what, <laughs> emphasis of what, what. <laughs> so, who is J.P. Smith? Um, where do you come from? Why did you choose politics um, to start with? Uh, bad career guidance counseling. <laughs> Somebody should have told me that there are other better career options uh, around. Um, I come from Kells River, mm. spent the majority of my life living in Kells River, just just down the road. Yeah. Every 40 minutes, nothing happens. Mm. Um, and uh, when I was in high school, I started developing, I started making friends with people who were um, involved in the Communist Party and in conscription campaign and otherwise, and I started developing a strong sense of how broken life was for many people. And when you develop that consciousness, you, it's very hard not to want to start to do something about mm. it. So I became a little bit more rebellious at school. That got me into trouble at Deaf Milan High School. And I ended up in Decalin after um, a, an abrupt separation with DF. Um, and I got involved with the only component of the then democratic dispensation or the apartheid uh, government dispensation that... Uh, you could legally use as a as a counterbalance, um, and that was the then DP, mm. the Democratic Party, uh, in 1989 in where I lived, and that was the Decalion constituency back then, and over time got more and more involved while sort of retaining many of my affinities and uh, and loyalties or friendships with people on the other side of the, or in the broader political spectrum. And today I still know some people in the Communist Party occasionally, mm remember me from back then um, and you know the, the, as you grow older your politics matures a bit and you start realising what can work and what will not work and you start abandoning um, ambitions or optimistic beliefs like uh, a belief that a communist regime can change mm. things and you start understanding what will actually empower our people and what will lead to a successful sustainable South Africa uh, and that uh, if you were involved, if you were a liberal democrat to end apartheid, you now need to be a liberal democrat and a patriot to stop what we are, what is happening now, which is the ongoing erosion of people's rights at the hands of poverty, at the hands of crime, at the hands of load shedding and water shortages and poor service delivery. The same things that, that made me believe that I had a role to play in helping end the National Party and I was part of a, the then DP's uh, by-election machinery. We fought 26 or 28 by-elections against the National Party. One, I think, all but two. I was proud of my role in driving nails in the coffin of that entity. Um, and uh, now I find that there is as important, if not more important, a mission in checking the abuse of power state capture and, and dysfunctional mm. governance being rendered by national government whilst trying in Cape Town to not step in those same traps and to render as good a service a municipality as you can under the circumstances. And when we talked, you said you were going to ask me about gangsterism. That's when we have to talk about what can local government realistically do when things start falling apart nationally mm. because unfortunately you can't do everything. Definitely. Before we get to um, gangsterism, um, many people view the DA as a whites-only, white supremacist, modern-day apartheid type of a NP. 
um, with many not actually knowing that yes, although the NP did merge with the DA back or the DP back then, but then the NP went to the ANC actually. So, but why do people still view the DA as an apartheid, pro-apartheid, whites-only political party? I think if you saw our multi <coughs> our manifesto launch over the weekend, and yeah. I was there in Johannesburg, <coughs> or you came to our congress last year in April, you would have seen what the delegates looked like. You would have seen that the vast majority of delegates are black, coloured, Indian, um, and that the party, whatever its historic roots were, <coughs> as a non-racial party in South Africa, in the old dispensation, fighting against the, the um, National Party and against the apartheid regime and arguing for, uh, for democratization of our systems and against pass laws and against um, so Group Areas Act. Um, I mean, I remember getting smacked in front of the Van Riebeek Hall in Kells River mm. in that 1989 election because I dared to suggest that we should have one man, one vote. That was anathema to the Nats then. Um, mm. And I was a snotcorp lighty, um, 20, it was, well, how many were years ago now? Uh, 30 years and 30 kilograms, I suppose. Um, and uh, the, uh, the DA has had a very consistent position. And yes, the Nats and the Federal Alliance did meet, uh, merge with us at one point. And then the Nats rapidly found that our values were very mm. different. Mm. We were a very badly, a very bad wedding. It was a very bad marriage. And it ended in abrupt divorce a year later. Um, when the Nats went and found people who think like them. And what are people who think like them? Nationalists. They are called the National Party. And within the title of the ANC is the word national, and it's there mm. for a reason. It is the African National Congress. And what unites them, and which is why they are a better marriage, despite the fact that they were on, on opposite sides, yeah. is that they are fundamentally both nationalist organizations who believe in the rights of groups and race identity and identity politics before they believe in individual rights. Um, and that we must be non-racial, that race must not matter. And you see that entrenched in current race legislation that tries to again pigeonhole us and classify us as coloreds, whites and Indians and blacks mm -hmm. for the purpose of employment, equity, etc. and tries to impose equity limitations on us that would, in, for instance, in the Western Cape be highly detrimental to so-called coloured people, um, which luckily we were able to deflect uh, most recently but uh, those are not values that I want to identify with. And I think the DA now is, uh, there is a, not a more racially diverse party. Show me another party whose Congress gets together or get together in, in meetings where the participants are as diverse as ours. Um, that just doesn't exist. Many of the parties who are in ascendance at the, at the moment are parties who speak to a single race, whether it is explicitly a pro-coloured with the NCC, mm. um, the PA or good, who punt and aggressively uh, appeal to a single racial group, the EFF who appeal to marginalised black voters, mm. um, or the Freedom Front Plus who appeal to, to white voters. They're all appealing to an, a, a surging a race identity politics. This is a global phenomenon. Mm. In, internationally, the political centre is not holding your mainstream or political centre around the world is collapsing and in its place you are finding the Brexits, the extremist parties. The Netherlands has just had yeah. an election with mm -hmm. a right-winger getting what slightly more than a third of the vote. And all around the world, in South America, in Europe, you are seeing these um, 
nationalist, racial nationalist voices rising. It's really bad for us, I think, collectively. It's a sad thing for, for the world, but it is what uh, politics is retreating into and we must resist it as hard as we can. But don't you think the reason why voters are going to progressive people like in Argentina, like what you mentioned in the Netherlands, is because the very parties that were there before didn't do anything for the population itself? Mm. I think sadly... Um, you have failed administrations and failed regimes that uh, were very often that they either linked to to defunct ideologies or were entirely self-serving um, and maybe hide behind the label democracy. Mm. But there is something worse than democracy. There is something worse than the free market. Uh, there is something worse than um, than a non-racial society, and that is all of us retreating into little racial lagers where everybody else has used people mm. or, or them. Um, mm. I don't want to live in, in that South Africa. I thought we took an important step forward in '94 when we committed ourselves to shedding those and to becoming a, a rainbow nation, the original vision of Tata Madiba. And I do feel that, sadly, government in South Africa has taken many steps back and that political parties are capitalizing on the anxiety and panic um, of, of voters and appealing to race identity. Uh, and it is, it's a regression, and we must resist it. Mm, I hear you. Um, so yeah, let's go to the first topic that I w- we want to discuss with you. You are the make or the MMC, make a member for, um, for safety and security within the city of Cape Town. Last year, in this current financial year, the, the mayor passed a billion rand safety budget, I believe. Um, in my view, I don't feel Cape Town being any more safe or the metropolitan area being any more safer. I live in Yesterf here, and people classify this community as a red zone community. Um, and one of the things that I discussed, um, I think about in the beginning of January, um, Alderman, with our sub... Well, please our just call me JP, everybody <laughs> else does. Um, with our um, work committee was the issue of lack of, or the lack thereof of metro police and also of other leap officers within our community. And I was so about, yeah, the ward must budget for that. Um, why isn't the city providing safety mechanisms for our communities where you know there's a huge array of dysfunction from, from national police to provide safety to our communities? So we have to take a half a step back to answer that one. Um, and firstly, just remind everybody that there are duties spelled out in the Constitution. Mm. There are two schedules on the Constitution, Schedule 4 and Schedule 5, that says who in government does what. Yeah. The crime prevention function is firmly, firmly affixed to national government and to the South African police. Mm. In fact, they occasionally write us letters mm. telling us we're stepping over the line. They regularly argue the point with us and tell us to go back to bylaw and traffic enforcement, which is what the Constitution tells us we should be doing. Mm. So this job that you're interrogating me on is you asking me to go do somebody else's job, which I buy, I accept that. We, we're long past the point where we go to public meetings and tell people this is not our job. You can't keep on doing that. And mm. I did that for the first few years of my, of my term when the means to do otherwise was not possible, and then we just gave up and we started just doing the things that we understood needed to be done. We created a gang and drug task team, a canine unit, increasing information management, mm-hmm. what Becky clearly calls and Brett Heron called the rogue unit, mm. um, the uh, safety and security investigations unit, the safety and security information management services. Uh, we started creating resources that could help us in the fight against crime, culminating in some very successful interventions in kidnapping. The rest of kidnapping stats across South Africa is spiking out of control in, in South Africa, 
uh, in Cape Town and in the Western Cape, those figures have reduced and stabilized. And if you go look at the graphs and the crime stats, you'll see we're a tiny little bar at the bottom mm. while the other provinces are spiking. That is a joint intervention with the South African police um, through the kidnapping and extortion task team. And we've added resources to make that possible. The SAPS is roughly half the deployment levels they should be. So if you go to any modern country and you go and ask the uh, police about their deployment levels, you're going to discover that a country that successfully combats crime has somewhere around one police officer for every 220 to 350 members of the public. If you do more than that, you are begging for, you're, you're, you're legislating misery, you're budgeting for misery, you're budgeting for, for violence and crime. Mm. And sadly, our current SAPS deployment levels are less than half of what they should be. So you've got around one officer for every 590 or so members of the public. That is guaranteed uh, a crime and problems. And then we've made that worse by adding um, a severe shortage of those parts of the criminal justice system that matter the most. Because running up and down the streets trying to block uh, criminals from hurting good people, trying to be the thin blue line, you can do if you're a very rich country. If you can deploy 50,000 cops or 55,000 cops like in New York, you can mm. do that. We, we don't have those means. So then you have to start making sure that the bad people who commit crime are prosecuted and we put away. So the Kailicha Commission of Inquiry showed us that that doesn't happen, that uh, sexual offences uh, are prosecuted, three, four, five percent of, of people are convicted. Gang violence, we know, is less than 2% of gang murders are convicted. So if a gangster shoots another gangster in Easter River, there's a 1 in 50 chance that he's going to be convicted. Mm. Those are good odds for gangsters, and that's why they keep on being gangsters, because the criminal justice system is deeply and profoundly broken. The problem doesn't lie um, only with the number of SAPS members on the street. It's very much the detectives. We're 8,600-plus detectives short in South Africa. The detective numbers have been shrinking year on year, just as the number of cops have in real terms. Western Cape now has many fewer cops than we had uh, five years ago, and our detective numbers have equally been shrinking. Regan Allen has put out a number of press statements about this, unpacking those figures, um, and if you haven't had him in here, you should, to talk specifically about those things. Uh, and the, the consequence is poor conviction rates with criminals being recycled, coming back on our streets and doing what they do well. The mm. spate of attacks on the mountain is driven in part by people who came out on parole and carried on doing exactly what they did what, what landed them in the prison in the first place. Um, and so uh, that means that we've increasingly had to step in this gap, but we do so without budget for it. National government, it's not that we suddenly put a thousand extra cops on the street uh, to fight crime, and national mm. government, oh, cool, here's the budget for it. We have to take that money from our other core business. What's our core business? Taking the bulk water that national government should be providing, but sometimes doesn't, and treating it and, and reticulating it, distributing mm. it to you through a pipe network and maintaining that. Managing the sewerage, managing the streetlights, reticulating the electricity from the bulk supply that national government is supposed to create and distributing to that. We have additional mechanisms that now saves us from one or two stages of load shedding and within the next year or two we will be able to strip another layer or two of load shedding, another two stages, hopefully. Um, and Capetonians will have a somewhat easier life of it than the rest of the country is having. And we are... Um, uh, that's our core business, parks, recreation facilities, etc. But every time we are forced to dip our hands in our budget mm. for more policing resources, it comes at the expense of those things. So when you're under the kind of pressure, it doesn't, and uh, with that crime presents us, it doesn't help 
to keep on telling the public, oh, well, our job is the library or the housing office or the clinic, when you can't keep any of those open because the gangsters are shooting. So at some point you make the commitment like we did to start intervening. We created the Gang and Drug Task Team and LEAP jointly with province. That's a 1.8 billion rand investment. 1.4 billion from province and 400 million from the city, all of which comes out of other budgets like the national, the provincial health mm. budget, the provincial education budget, where we shouldn't be taking money from either, but you don't have a choice. So we are increasingly stepping into the space. We're doing more targeted interventions. We're focusing on firearms. We're putting in systems like ShotSpotter to figure out where the fire shots are coming from so we can respond quickly. We have an investigations unit which tracks what happens to those firearm cases so they don't just disappear so that we actually get convictions on them. Um, and uh, as a consequence, you know, just over the last two years, we've taken around 700 guns off the street uh, that's punching well above our weight range um, as a local authority. That's really doing national government's job for them. But we cannot do that in all the 60-plus police stations in the metro. We That kind of budget that we've carved out of our other functions is servicing 13 police precincts, the 13 mm. with the worst crime stats. Easter River is not in the top 20. Um, uh, and we have attempted to, we started so that we could justify it by just literally doing the ones that were generating the most crime, uh, those top stations out of the, the all the police stations in the city generate almost half your total violent crime stats. So a small proportion of your stations are generating the vast majority of mm. your serious violent crime statistics. You must start with them. And as a consequence, while the rest of South Africa has been tracking up in the murder statistics quarter on quarter, um, 14% up over the last three years. We are down in the province by 9% and 11% in the leap stations. Okay. Um, and, and, and why not okay. Yersha River? We do have staff, but it's on a soft border solution. So uh, we have uh, defined areas in the city and the staff are deployed to those areas and they will respond to incidents. Does that bring adequate visibility with what we have um, overall in safety and security? Absolutely not. So we are year on year trying to grow as fast as we can whilst dealing with all the other mm. budget crises and pressures. Uh, we're growing by around 200 staff. You saw um, last year we took in 1,000 extra people. Mm. We're still now in the training college, which I'm very excited about. So we're trying to grow as fast as we can with the available budget. That does mean that there's a little bit more available every year for each area. Is it at the level of visibility? I would like absolutely not. Um, but there is going to be a distinct limit about what we can do now. The reality is that we neglect our duty of traffic and by-law enforcement mm. because two-thirds of our effort is now spent on crime prevention. Um, the DA is pushing for the provincial powers bill. <coughs> we try to devolve power from national government to the province. The ANC says no because uh, you're just going to create your own little Orania within the Western Cape itself. Um, why do you think the ANC is fighting you on this bill? And why do you believe also it's important for this bill to be pushed through and to allow for the Western Cape government or other capable provinces to manage their own um, safety, rail, and other um, things you want from national government? I think if you go sit in the average SALGA meeting, South African Local Government Association meeting, and everybody puts their political colours aside for a moment and you listen to people speak, mm. you will see that... Almost as a whole, all of local government, regardless of the political party that governs them, will tell you they would much rather manage many of these affairs themselves. That many of the things that are stuck in the hands of national government that are not working, water and electricity, policing, uh, <coughs> would be better performed at other levels. International best practice shows that generally policing is held at either state, mm. uh, in other words, provincial or at local level. 
And I think we have demonstrated in the Western Cape that with combinations of technology, uh, eye in the sky, CCTV cameras, ANPR cameras, dash cams, body cams, the other tools that we're using that we can impact on crime, that we can introduce computer-aided dispatch, which monitors where all of our staff are, what they're doing, how long they're taking to do it, how many incidents we're attending to and how fast, so that there's accountability and therefore consequence management, which is sadly missing mm-hmm. in the National Police Service. If you look at the IPED, the Independent Police Investigation Directorate stats, that paint a very big, big picture about murder, rape, uh, torture and death in custody, in police custody. Mm-hmm. Um, that we have been able to impact very positively on policing. And as with water, as with electricity, these things are better devolved to other spheres of government. The Provincial Powers Bill is doing what every bit of government, uh, or provincial government is more or less talking about all over the country, although some of them are bound by, mm. by party um, discipline uh, not to do it so publicly. But all of us would like to see the devolution of some of those powers out of the hands of national government because they are demonstrably dysfunctional. You can show publicly. There's no member of the public, no matter what uh, politics they believe in. Maybe in the Western Cape, I look at the polls, the uh, polling that we do as a political party, and less than a third of the population in this province believe that we are moving in the right direction as a country. And nationally, white, black, Indian and coloured voters are now pretty much on the same page about that. Even the ANC's own voters no longer mm. believe that the country is moving in the right direction and say so in polling. Um, and that's why they're shedding voters to MK and to the EFF and otherwise, and presumably to Rise and Zanzi and, and also to the DA. If you look at our achievements in Zuelice, in um, Kailicha, uh, in, in, in Hermanus and in Nyanga, where we got 17% of the vote, uh, you're seeing the ANC shed voters. So devolution must happen. It's not, it's not a maybe. In our constitution, when the constitution was drafted at Kudesa, there was a fundamental understanding that you needed to give power to provincial and local government, the principle of subsidiarity and the devolution of power. That was an yeah. understood principle. Our constitution and our initial founding legislation is actually quite federalist in nature. It believes that power should be uh, devolved to the lowest possible mm. level and only where it can't be performed by a local government should it be taken up to province and only where it can't be performed by province should it be in the hands of national. Unfortunately, the national governing party suffers a centralisation psychosis. They mm. believe everything must sit yeah. in the centre and they've been trying to make laws to pull it to the centre, everything. The Public Administration Management Act, single police service where they're trying to hijack all the metro polices and put them under SAPs. Um, and so... Uh, this bill will force the issue into the constitutional court. The ANC will not be able to leave the bill standing when it becomes an act. They will have to challenge it. A court will need to pronounce on it. Mm. And then uh, we will see and if the constitution, if the bill is borne out by the constitution, which I believe it will be, then we will start that process of trying to put things like SAPs under the control of the provincial government or local government. What will the first step be um, from, a national, from a DA point of view? when you have powers to, or when a, when a particular bill is passed, what will your first act be as a government? And I might, you, you would be able to predict that my first answer is going to be about policing. Mm. I would actually tell you housing. Because national government supplies us a very small budget annually for housing. Um, and I think one of the, uh, that limits us to rendering around 4,000 or 5,000 units a year uh, in that housing uh, to for housing purposes. The growth of that is is 10 times larger. So we are, every month, we are seeing many more uh, people semigrating to to the Cape 
There are municipalities like mm-hmm. Mossel Bay and others that are growing furiously, even faster than Cape Town. Um, and the need for housing is critical. You cannot live a dignified or quality life in an informal structure. Definitely. You cannot be safe, you cannot study, you cannot prosper, um, you cannot be effectively com- economically competing without those basics. Water, electricity, sewerage, and housing are essentials. And with that, a job, because if you don't have a job, you can't sustain that mm. house. You can get the house, but you'll have to sell it soon, as many people do, mm. and go back to living in an informal structure because you can't pay rates and tariffs and other stuff. So for me, housing would be a big issue, and I believe that the, the power that national government holds around um, being the, the regulatory authority and, and making the decisions about that budget, that's the first thing that we should be challenging, seeing province and city take more uh, power there. And... Uh, I, I'm looking forward to the ANC losing its um, uh, two more provinces because when that happens, if the ANC loses three provinces, Gauteng, KZN and the Western Cape, mm. uh, that means they can no longer push through legislation. Then uh, the NCOP in, uh, develops a veto that can block irregular legislation because we're getting into the phase of national government's life cycle after three decades, ZANU, PF, every other... Uh, post-colonial government where the government start doing more reckless things in order mm. to hang on to power and it becomes increasingly more important that you're able to veto the worst abuses of this power. So I think that's an important um, thing that might now change in 2024 in this May election is that the ANC loses the ability to make national legislation as they see fit and one of the pieces of legislation that has to be reversed and amended rapidly is the Pi Act. Mm. which is rendering our city and many cities across the country. I, had a, I have two delegations from ANC-controlled municipalities who are visiting our city at the moment to figure out how to what they can do to improve their policing situation or coming to learn from us. I spoke to them this morning before, um, just before I came here. And they, um, uh, when you start talking about land invasions, that's one thing all municipalities are suffering from. Salga even has a working committee to try and deal with this. Mm. And uh, the, um, uh, this is a crisis that we need to amend rapidly. It is making life intolerable for many communities. Just ask any of the residents in Delft who now live next to, that, uh, under the, next to the power lines where that uh, power line reserve has been occupied and where your electricity outages are now constant. Um, continuing on the issue of land invasion, we are seeing a continuation of the construction mafia within Cape Town. More land is being stolen every single day. Um, the NCC is people from the Eastern Cape coming here and invading land. But also, um, what is the city doing? Oh, also, the, the city took the those I think a group of land invasion in, invaders to court, where the court said they can now be removed. Um, mm-hmm. What can you just speak more about that land invasion as well as the construction mafia within the city? So we've always had a problem with land invasions. It's been with us for many years. The problem is the Pi Act, because mm. the Pi Act says that you may not, as a landowner, private or public, remove somebody who comes and squats on land, erects a structure. You may not deprive them of their home, but the Act doesn't say what is a home. Mm. So a home can be something where, when you get home now, Master Fritz, wherever you live, somebody may have climbed over your wall and put up a tent. The moment he unfolds and pops that tent open, it is deemed to be a home. Okay. And you need an eviction order to remove that person. So I can go to Inkantla tomorrow there. Yes, sir. You can mm. go to the state president's home in the top of Fresne and you can go put up a structure there on that pavement and it's going to take 
government or the private property owner six to 18 months to evict you and only after we give you alternative accommodation, which is just palm bene, it's tati. Mm. That's mad stuff. Um, because what it does, of course, is incentivizes more people to invade because, oh, look, I invade mm. and then I get rewarded by queue jumping mm. the 600,000 people on the waiting list. So that's deeply wrong. It's fundamentally wrong. You're encouraging lawlessness. Mm. You're telling the good people who um, are abiding by the law, or you're wasting your time, disobey the law. And so the Pi Act must change. And I think there's general acknowledgement that that is the case. Everybody understands the act to be broken. We have proposed amendments to it in national government. We have uh, provinces working on a provincial version of the Pi Act. And myself and my colleague, Councillor Mzwaking Ravashe, the Safety and Security Portfolio Chair, drafted the unlawful occupation bylaw, mm. which we'll see, um, which now provides us some additional mechanism to it. So before COVID, we would de- had a success rate of around 97%. So out of every 100 structures that we erected, three would stay standing, the other 97 we would remove. During COVID, national government changed the law. So firstly, um, they made in the COVID regs, the disaster management mm. regulations, they made it unlawful to evict somebody. Yeah. Courts wouldn't entertain those applications. And they then created various additional regulations that made it more difficult for us. And so structures ballooned everywhere. The whole of Drift Suns got occupied. Big nature reserve. That was meant to be the urban park and future economic hub developments for the Metro Southeast, for Kailicha and Mfuleni and, and Atlantis and uh, Atlantis and and areas around here. This is a big piece of open space that was a designated nature reserve mm. that would have been your green lung, your recreation spaces, your urban park for this area. It's now almost completely occupied and, and ruined. And the reason for that was that the South African Human Rights Commission, in the middle of all of that, then went, thank you, Chris Nissen, got a uh, court interdict against the city to prevent us from counter-spoliating. So counter-spoliation is the right that we have as a government mm. to act against people trying to occupy land and remove the structures immediately. So for a long time, we were paralyzed. The um, the Supreme Court of Appeals eventually overturned that, but not after a lot of damage is done. So now we are the, the our anti-land invasion unit is uh, has again achieved a much higher rate of um, uh, of of action. We use drones to to take aerial pics, so we can mm. see what was there yesterday and what is there today. So we act on an evidence basis, and uh, we have uh, a couple of hundred eviction applications before the court. They are coming through now, one or two or three. Every second or third week, we are now another big eviction application. The one to remove the tents and the CBD just came mm. through. There are several others that have come through with much less media attention um, and that we will start giving effect to. Why do people always see the, when the city goes to the courts to remove these people as somewhat, once again, the DA being racist or the DA removing <coughs> the poor or not caring for the poor? I think because, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a convenient or expedient political narrative. If you are the NCC or the EFF, it's expedient for you to say that. Mm. But in municipalities that they control, they're getting eviction applications every day. So over the last uh, three years, since the beginning of COVID, 2020, uh, January 2020, till now, I think we've removed around 270, 280,000 structures, pegs and sites that we've cleared from land invasions. Uh, when you speak to other municipalities, they're doing the same. Um, Johannesburg... Other metros, Mangaung, mm. Etiquini, they're doing the same. They have anti-land invasion units. Every day they're demolishing structures. And if you go on to um, social media, you can find the Gauteng, ANC, uh, MEC for housing, standing in the middle of a field where all the structures have just been demolished and saying, don't think you can wake up one morning and just think you can take land. Mm. We will demolish your structure. 
in that case, the structures they demolished were actually several days old and they actually violated the, their own national legislation. But the law apparently applies differently for national government and for everybody else. Uh, so uh, having to act to protect land is essential because if you cannot protect um, land ownership, you're going to find that nobody will invest money. Nobody mm. will build businesses. And where we've lost land, we've lost jobs. In the noon, that big parcel of land between the wetland and the uh, that was lost between the noon and the wetland, um, I think it's is that called Valbaluent? Um That piece of land would have supplied over a thousand jobs. That's gone. It's occupied. It will take a long time to to clear that. And the conditions of the occupation are bad. So every land invasion guarantees immediately. Um, uh, the uh, instant misery for the, the residents in that space to be constantly subjected to fires, uh, flooding, mm. uh, a lack of services because you can't get service vehicles in. You have to lift the structures to put in water and electricity, which is generally not possible. And then the topography of that site makes it impossible. If you look at um, uh, Marikana, so-called Marikana informal settlement, and that was also built on a large piece of um, industrial zoned land that destroyed around 3,800 jobs. So we are going to pay for a long time in that people who would have had employment as a result of development that would have created jobs, not having them, and instead living in conditions that are appalling. And this is why land invasions are just not uh, a viable option, not sustainable. Mm. And what it says to every landowner is it's not worthwhile for me to build a factory here or create jobs here or open a shopping centre here because my land is not safe. I cannot guarantee that when I do so, it's not going to get invaded and occupied. And it's also preventing millions from getting homes. If you speak to housing developers about why they will not develop in that low-income sector. It's very. The answer is most often that it is unsafe for me to try and do so because my land will be invaded. Mm. And I can show you any number of Cape Town housing developments aimed at that sector where the developers came off second. And so what happens is, in the end, it's only government develops in that sector. The private sector is not developing. And if you look at some countries who successfully deal with these kind of problems, like China, it's their private sector that builds that housing, not the state. And here, what is missing from housing delivery is that. And that's why you'll see the mayor and uh, our housing department in Cape Town, the Human Settlements, is working very hard, not just on trying to build the four or 5,000 houses here that they can with the institutional subsidy, mm -hmm. but on releasing land for developers to build housing for low-income and for the middle class, which frees up again units for other people to move into so that people can move up in life and move ahead. Okay. Um, the last question before we go to a quick break. Um, part of that bill also includes um, getting power from national to to also um, manage transport, also the rail system in, in the city, mm -hmm. in the province. Um, last year we saw a huge taxi protest in the city. Um, the minister came here and basically told you that you don't know the laws and that she will force whatever for you to release those um, taxes that, we, that were impounded. Um is a city or J.P. Smith, is, is he a god to him own, a president or a lord to his own? Or, or why are you not listening to what your minister at national level tells you, Mr. J.P. Smith? So, no, I'm a humble dude. <laughs> I'm a very humble dude. And, and I don't have, a, I don't have a, um, a grand idea about where I am in the, the greatest scheme of things. Mm. Um, sadly, the minister had to be schooled on national television, no. because as it turns out, she didn't know her own legislation. 
she didn't understand that it was her own legislation that the ANC had written that facilitated the impasse, mm. that we were acting in terms of the National Land Transport Act. So I think embarrassing for both her and Becky clearly to have to be educated on television about what the laws they wrote said. Uh, but that's par for the course. I actually encounter that quite often. Uh, the, so the city impounds taxis because fines don't work and taxis drive appallingly. This is one of the biggest mm. complaints categories we get every day. It's not a person alive in our city or in this country who thinks taxis drive in a manner that is acceptable. Yeah. I challenge you to go out here now and find 10 of those people. You know, I'll buy you lunch if you can. <laughs> if you can find 10 people who think taxi drivers drive in a normal manner. Um, and so the, the challenge with what's happened with the taxi industry over time is a largely unregulated industry. Mm. And it's just short of 100 billion rand a year, of which they pay something ridiculous like 5 million rand yeah, tax. Yeah. <clears throat> and the only tax they pay is on the salaries of staff who are employed by these various associations, the PAYE, that they can't avoid paying. The rest of it is going untaxed. And within that environment, you have a lot of really bad practices. If you want to go read a book about bad practices, then read um, Mark Shaw's Hitman for Hire. It's a study. He's from the Institute for Security Studies, and he does a study on um, assassins. Where do assassins come from and who pays assassins in South Africa? Uh, who, uh, who pays for murder for hire? And the conclusion he comes to after interviewing a lot of uh, hitmen in our country is that they have their start in the taxi industry. Mm. It's the generator of the majority of hits and, and, and assassinations. Uh, last two weeks, we've seen assassinations with 13 people killed. Yeah. Um, in, in two weeks, within the taxi industry, with tit-for-tat assassinations and murders, I think in the last 10 years, we're sitting on over 80 assassinations, which SAPs have not been able to. I don't think a single conviction has resulted from any of those assassinations and murders. Uh, there are people within this Easter River community who have been the victims of that. Families I've spoken to in Blackheath and East River who have been victims of the uh, attempts by big taxi associations to expand into the territories of smaller um, associations not affiliated to them and using violence to coerce those outcomes. And so we took a stand against that. Um, it had violent consequences. I think the majority of the people understood that it, it, we had to do what mm. we did, that you could not back down, that every time somebody threatens you with violence, if you capitulate, what you beget and engender is more violence, mm. is more of that behavior. And that the way to stop it is to say no to it. The minister didn't release any taxes because she didn't have the power mm. to, um, as we understood and she didn't. Um, and uh, the taxis protested at that stage because we were impounding around 30 of their vehicles a day. Now we're impounding between 40 and 50 a day. Uh, and we'll carry on doing that because we have to address driver behaviour. We're updating the traffic bylaw to expand the range of offences that fall within those ambit. Um, but you cannot survive as a nation without a rail system. If you as a city do not have a functioning rail network, you cannot grow, you cannot have economic prosperity, you cannot move freight. You cannot move cargo from your port to your factories to other cities. You are dependent on the road network. That eats up your roads, it destroys your road networks, it congests your roads. The reason we're suffering such bad congestion is that millions of commuter journeys every day that were sitting on the trains mm. have been displaced onto the roads. Mm. When Dan Plato and I walked to, uh, went to Kailicha station one morning early at something after five and tried to climb on the train, which was delayed by more than an hour and a half, uh, we saw the taxi uh, gachis running up and down saying, no trains, no trains, but the taxis are here, mm. which just told you everything. And now recently, 
in the testimony of one of the arsonists who were convicted for burning the trains, he said that it was the taxi industry who paid. So we understand the relationship and the sabotage of a rail network um, and the lack of the failure by, by Prasa and other rail um, entities, uh, state-owned enterprises, to protect the assets that have seen the whole central line stripped mm. to places where you can go. You can't even see there was a railway line or there was a rail station. This is gross negligence in duty. Uh, and unfortunately, the people who pay for that are people who are now at the mercy of a taxi who will decide when you travel and if it doesn't want you to travel, will, will withhold services. The disgrace during the taxi strike was that the buses, who were quite capable of taking up the slack, who were quite willing to take up the slack. It's not that they couldn't, it's that they were denied through violence by the taxi industry, immediately started attacking the buses and burning buses, burnt ambulances and others um, to, to do so. And that is what happens when one sector gains an unhealthy and dangerous monopoly over a service that affects the lives of millions. Um, before we go to the break, quickly, um, the taxis are saying also that you are taking too long to issue them with permits. Um, and that's why uh, many of them just drive without having permits. And also... You are saying that the taxi has a huge bulk of the um, sector itself. Why don't the city then also increase or expand the service of my city to this part of the, of the metro as well? It is constantly trying to do so, but as you see with huge pushback, political pushback um, and pushback from the industry. Remember that the, the My City service was built on agreements with the Taxi Association. Mm. We tried to incorporate them into the equation so that they had a financial interest in working with us and not against us, not burning the buses. Because the buses were being operated by uh, companies that included the taxi industry as stakeholders. It's the only sensible way to, pro to mm. proceed. But even with the renewal of the Metro South East contract, that was delayed by for years because of shenanigans... Of, of people with conflicts of interest who were, who were playing games with that. And in the end, it was a huge legal wrangle to get those, those agreements renewed. Um, and the, the reality is that the, the industry probably now has, has too much power and is too readily willing to resort to violence to achieve its outcomes when we try and do the things that the law compels us to do, like enforcement for driving on the sidewalk, driving into oncoming traffic, smashing out people's windows on the road and stuff like that. Uh, so the, uh, the reality is that the, the taxi industry is something that we have to work with. They do uh, transport the majority of the people. And this morning I met with Rob Quintus and MEC Ricardo McKenzie on this very subject uh, before I went to go see their delegation. And the, uh, there are a lot of um, operating licenses that are not yet utilized. So during that time when the strike happened, we had already in the months before that made, province had made, because it's the provincial regulator, uh, I think between six and 7,000 operating licenses available. There were several hundred, I think eight or 900 Avanza or the smaller commuter taxis um, that uh, licenses that had been made available and uh, those licenses had not been taken up. So there is a little bit of disin disingenuity when the industry says, well, there are not enough licenses when we make licenses available and they are, not, they are not taken up by the operators. The truth is that in many cases there are associations trying to work on routes that are already saturated. Yeah. 
And if you permit that, if you turn a blind eye to it, if you don't do enforcement and allow the rogue taxes and pirate taxes to operate on each other's routes, what you have is taxi violence, where the association then tries to settle those fights themselves, like we see regularly in between Freigrond and Retreat, where the Freigrond and Retreat associations intrude, where there's intrusion on the Retreat um, association's uh, um, routes, and the matter is then violently uh, settled, which is intolerable to everyone. So we have to play our role in making sure that we do consistent enforcement without fear of favor, without benefiting or advantaging anybody, just upholding the law to make sure that they stick on the the roots. But you're welcome to ask Rob or um, Ricardo (coughs) around the exact figures for how many Mm -hmm. operating licenses are available, how many are taken up, and why more licenses or operating permits are not being made available on certain routes. Okay. Um, Thank you so much, um, uh, Mr. J.P. Smith. We're going to take a quick break, guys. We'll be right back. And then we're going to focus on the next segment on the multi-party charter as well as the MPE 2024. Stay with us. Don't go anywhere. You cannot. cannot, I'm good, sir. You cannot go into that without asking me about your interview with Cheslin. Okay, okay. Because Cheslin made a remark that cannot go unchallenged. What did he say? He told you, quite dishonestly, that um, the DA was scared of losing the ward and therefore we didn't put up a candidate. Okay. And that they won the ward. The the reality is very different. I will ask that. Mm. Oh, you listened to the interview as well? Yes, yes. <laughs> um. Oh, I forget about that. What award is he again? What? 56. 56. He told you quite a, a dishonest story. And um, I was asked by the um, some of the community members and one of the councillors there, please to set the record straight, okay. which I will try and do if you give me the chance. Yes, a quick question for you as well, but I'll just read it to you whilst when we get back sure. on air again from Mr. Um, Choskanya. Yeah. Are we still live? We must go to a music break. <laughs> I'll just edit that part out. Yes, our station, our talent, our people. Tidang Raki. Butcher's Market offers the best quality, locally sourced, and 100% halal meats. Visit our store at Sambury Square Mall. Contact us at 021-565-04-9 TPM for your halal meats. Our station, our talent and our people.
station in the mother city radio easter river for more information log on to our website which is www.radioeasterriver.co.za Um, welcome back. I do hope you enjoyed that um, break there. The liquor song with Michael Jackson there, Billy Jean. Okay, so Mr. Joskin, yes, good afternoon, Yvandrin, Alderman J.P. Smith. Welcome to Radio Easter River, Alderman J.P. Smith by Bevan Jacobs. I say, hey, I say, have a blessed day, champ. And then, Mr. Joskin, I have a question for you, Alderman. I said, I also have a question for J- Mr. J.P. What do you do when neighbors that parks and blocks the street daily and on weekends? Um, because he has called the law enforcement, they did not pitch um, for that complaint. So they parked probably before in front of his gate over weekend and the whole week as well. Okay, so there's two aspects to that. The one is in the Road Traffic Act, 
that says that you're not allowed to park in such a way as to, as to obstruct a carriageway crossing, a driveway entrance into somebody's property, or to obstruct the road. And obviously you can't park your vehicles for endless. You have backyard mechanics or other people with abandoned vehicles who just park them all over the parks and stuff. And those are offences. Uh, so some of that is in terms of the Road Traffic Act. The traffic mm. department can go and find them. If a vehicle is stationary in one place, they will come and put a notice on it for the vehicle to move. <clears throat> if it's not moved, we tow it as an abandoned vehicle. So that's part of the remedy. The others is in the streets and public places and prevention of nuisances bylaw that says that you're not allowed to turn the street or a public sidewalk or any public place into a mechanical workshop. Mm. And that other than working on your own vehicle in an emergency or vehicle breaks down next to the road, reasonably you must fix it. But for anything beyond emergency repairs to your own vehicle, uh, the city may obviously fine you or tow the vehicles. If he has complained about that and has not gotten response, uh, please give my number out. It's on the city website. Hundreds of people WhatsApp mm -hmm. me every day. And we will um, uh, just send me the reference number you got when you called our call center, 21 480-7700, which is our 24-hour call center. Over 80% of the calls are answered in the first 10 seconds. So call me and we will, um, uh, I will f uh, or text me that, WhatsApp me that reference number and the, the short description of the complaint and I will escalate it and find out with management why it has not been acted on. Okay. I hope it answered your question, Mr. Joskin here. Um, Alderman, before the break, we spoke about um, the various different issues of crime and the taxi mafia, or can I call it the mafia? I don't know. I don't know, you might end up on the hit list also. Ah, yeah, that's true. He's the young one to go. I can't even go. Mr. JP, the DA proposed last year at your Congress um, the Moonshot Pact. It was later changed to the multi party charter for, for South Africa, mm -hmm. yeah, I believe. Um, and invited various different parties to come together under one roof and discuss the future of our country. Uh, many analysts have suggested this might not be able to unseat the ANC yet. I also believe, I believe they're still too strong, it might, but this will definitely be the last five years in government if they will win this election. You, of course, don't have, you don't believe that. You believe you will win with the multi-party charter. Mm, no, I'm pretty much where you are. Um, I think you've answered the question <laughs> quite eloquently yourself. Uh, look, it's it's difficult to see where it's going to go at this stage. Mm. We're three months away from the election, depending on when in May it is, and the the political outcomes are a moving target. Polling has taken a very interesting turn. Mm. Even the ANC's internal polling now shows them at no more than 40%. Mm. That has been the case now for almost all the polling done by all the different researchers except a few whose polling is um, maybe a little bit opportunistic and that, that serves uh, or, you know, where we would dispute the outcome. But if you look at the polling done by different uh, entities and the DA's own polling, which is generally very accurate, we've been able to predict the election results often within a percentage or two. Uh, there's no polling that shows the anti-polling above 50%, mm. generally around the 40% mark, and they've dipped below that. There was a point at which they dipped into the low 30s a few months ago. Uh, normally around election time when they're spending a lot of budget and uh, firing on all channels, on all the media, television, radio, uh, everywhere else, you're seeing uh, as much propaganda as the national state broadcaster can, can mm. reasonably get away with. Then you will find that um, that, that vote, vote firms up. But it's not going to firm up below 45. They are going to need a coalition government. Uh, one way or another. 
who that coalition partner is will uh, will still be determined. Uh, there is the possibility that it's the EFF, what we mm. call the Doomsday Pact, mm. uh, which is a worst-case scenario, we believe, for South Africans, where you start making all kinds of concessions to populist politics uh, and uh, start uh, eroding land rights and other uh, uh, civil liberties. Uh, the EFF has some dangerous uh, populist ideas that do not drive investment and a, pr- a prosperous future for South Africa. Um, and uh, the counter to that is what John Stianazen proposed with our Congress, which is the so-called multi-party charter or the Moonshot Pact. And we have seen a variety of political parties come on mm. board with that, including the ACDP, the Freedom Front Plus, the IFP, um, Action um, South SA. Africa, mm. Action SA, and so forth. And it remains to see where that will go. Um, at the moment, I am encouraged by the polling. We are polling consistently in the high 20s as the, as the DA. Um, provincially, our polling looks very healthy. It doesn't want to give all the information away. But we have firmed up our support from where it was um, in 2019, which was, which was not a great election for us. Um, and in the metro, uh, the same. So... We will see what the outcomes are. The three battleground provinces will be Gauteng, Western Cape and KZN. It is exceedingly unlikely that the ANC will keep those provinces, almost certainly with the polling as it is now. Um, uh, We already know the situation in Gauteng with Mm. all the uh, coalition metros. That's because the ANC couldn't get a majority in any of those metros. Uh, And uh, the polling at the moment in KZN shows that the parties are all going to get around the 20 to 30% mark. The NC is coming down to 30. Uh, MK, Jacob Zuma's new party, uh, is sitting at 20 and possibly 20 plus, yeah. and the IFP at around 30. So that's going to be an interesting coalition, whatever comes out of there. Uh, and then nationally, if the coalition parties carry on growing, because all of our trajectories are up, ANC's trajectory is down continuously, we may find over the next two months that things tip faster than just a slow linear progression. You have elections where you very abruptly have voter change. Mm. We have seen some of those patterns emerging in some of the polling intermittently when on a particular week the result is really bad for the ANC. What you will also see is that ANC voters are increasingly discouraged from voting. If you look at all the recent by-election results, they have shed vote everywhere. And they have shed vote to the EFF, to the MK, and to various independents on occasions, even to the DA. I mean, the EFF came in fourth behind uh, behind the DA in the Nyanga by-election, and the same in Hermanus and Zulicha. So there are interesting changes happening. It is entirely possible, although not as likely as, a, as an ongoing ANC election. It's entirely possible that we will see a... Um, a coalition unseat the ANC, but that's going to depend on the voters. It's going to depend on the people who listen to your radio show and many uh, millions of South Africans who are in that category when we do the polling of people who believe South Africa is moving in the wrong direction, but 68% of the population. And actually those figures are almost identical for black and minority voters, Mm. which is interesting. In the past, black voters generally believed South Africa was heading in the right direction. Minority voters thought it was going in the wrong direction. That's changed. Now the two uh, the, the, the demographics are almost aligned, which is a very interesting change. And what you may well see is that ANC voters simply don't go to the polls. So they may not switch party yet. And remember, that's the difference between 
polling and elections. Polling asks you when you're sitting at home, who do you support? Mm. An election is for who do you put a ballot Physical. box in the, in the yep. uh, paper in the ballot box. And that's where the rubber hits the road because that's where voters then just refuse to turn out. During these past registration weekends, the DA has aggressively, extremely successfully registered new voters. We've gone and found out where our supporters are and we've made sure that they are registered to vote. The ANC has failed to do that very significantly. And that is going to tell at the polling booths because there are going to be fewer voters to vote for them. Um, and so I think that uh, uh, this is going to be a very scary election for the ANC. Um, and almost certainly, it is if they do survive, it will be the last election where they survive as, as government. And that's normal. There's very yeah, no few doubt. governments across... Um, Africa, who survived the 30-year mark, post-colonial governments, liberation governments, generally you get three decades, mm. and then the voters say, okay, you were... Genug. That is what we owed you. We're now moving on. We're at that shelf life now for the ANC. The Ipsos post showed the EFF um, coming in to be the official opposition. 19%. Yeah. Uh, no other polling shows that. All the other polling consistently shows them at 10 to 12 And we poll weekly. Some of those polls are done once a year or once mm. every six months. So they take a snapshot at a particular time. Yes, they take a bigger snapshot, but we poll weekly. Thousands of people every week. And so we can see that the EFS con support has consistently been 10 to 12. If the ANC gets 40, the EFF would push them over the edge. Mm. If you do not want that outcome, if you're an ANC or EFF supporter, that's the scenario you like, well, then you'll be happy with that. But if you're not and you don't think the country is going in the right direction... Now is the time to get mobilized, to make sure that you go and vote um, and that you mobilize your family to vote because it's the first time in 30 years where the outcome of the election is not predictable. Yeah. Every election since 94, we've known how it's going to be. You've gone through the motions, but the outcome was pretty predictable, except in one or two little uh, swing areas like the Western Cape and mm -hmm. Cape Town. Um, but this is the first election where that outcome is not predictable. And quite frankly... I, I, I pray that we do have a, a change because the ANC of today is not the ANC of Nelson Mandela. It's not Definitely the ANC not. of Oliver Tambo. It's not the ANC of those who fought for liberation. It's become a kleptocracy, a self-serving kleptocracy that's now an enemy of the people. If for no other reason than what is happening around our national police service, it's time for change if we want a safe future. And I don't know what South Africa looks like in 2029 with another five years of ANC government. The extent to which our state-owned enterprises are failing, to which our core government functions around water and electricity, basic services are failing, I don't know that we can survive another five years. Mm. Um, in your view, should, let's for example say this happens now, and everyone votes EFF and everyone's with ANC, what do you see our country look at after the next five years? Should the, the one be the the governing party, the other one be the official opposition? I don't think that the ANC will get uh, uh, an outright majority. They won't make 50%. So they will need the EFF then for a coalition if that's mm. who they choose. I can't believe that sense in the ANC will not prevail, that they will resort to that outcome. I, I pray that we're able to unseat them, failing that, that they make a more sensible coalition than with the EFF. Because that way, I think, lies very substantial disinvestment. You then start looking at the kind of ZANU-PF end of days mm. scenario with rapid hyperinflation disinvestment um, and a introduction of national policies, as is outlined in the EFS, or the insane manifesto, that will tip us further over the edge in terms of eroding property rights um, and, and crippling our economy. But 
the EFO says that it was not the policies of Zanopu EFO Zimbabwe that brought them there, but rather the um, sanction of the West that actually brought Zimbabwe to where it is today. Sure, I don't know. You must speak to Zimbabweans. <laughs> I know enough of those because all of them are here. Um, so I speak to many Zimbabweans. Mm. Um, and if I find out somebody's from Zimbabwe, I make a point of speaking to them. They make for interesting Very conversation. People, yeah. Very nice people. I'm always impressed by the level of eloquence and insight mm. Zimbabweans have about their country and how they ended up where they ended up and how the new regime now looks. Because they all thought they were going to get a, a break after Mugabe and yeah. then it got worse. Um, so whenever you say it can't get worse, it can. Uh, so no, that is not the, the impression. You had a sustained uh, government with a single hegemony, a single regime that did what it wanted to, eroded rights, uh, blocked, and some would say assassinated opposition, silenced opposition, and the outcome is a failed state. Mm. South Africa has taken some big step in the direction of failed state. We see it in our currency. We see it in the level of international trust. We've gone from international darling to international fool to yeah. international pariah. We're rapidly arriving at the pariah thing where, where the country is not well met, where people, you say to people you're from South Africa, and they go, oh, well, how do you explain this or that that you're governed? That wasn't my experience. When I traveled to, as a young person, I took a gap year. I went to Malaysia for a year. Mm. I didn't want to go to London or New York. I wanted to go work in Malaysia, something different where I could learn about a different way of life. And I really loved Malaysia. Um, and uh, when you told people where you were from there, there was an excitement about your country. You said, I'm from Africa, Selantan. Um, and once you explained, you know, Madiba, they didn't know what South Africa was and they didn't understand how a very pale person comes from there yeah. and then you explain South Africa Nelson Mandela and they go oh okay they get it it was a positive energy that you were met with people mm. were excited and proud of where your nation was at that is no longer the case now when you travel internationally people have um, very different views about when what our country is and that's sad we must repair that definitely um, I had the councillor of the PA year last week um, and he made some utterances that you did not of course like um, talk to us about that please uh, Councillor Cheslin Stienberg yeah. so Councillor Stienberg said to you that he was elected because the DA was too scared to contest Ward 56 Kensington and that we we um, didn't put up a candidate in the election and the PA won the election that's not of course entirely the truth and Cheslin is often very um, frugal with the truth uh, <clears throat> it's a reason why he is increasingly finding himself on the wrong side of his community organisations uh, the civic associations in, in his ward uh, but the truth is that the, the DA had an internal uh, uh, screw up with our nomination process and as a consequence of a big mistake uh, an unforgivable mistake uh, we didn't register a candidate. So the DA didn't participate in that, not mm. because we were scared. Uh, we knew the outcome uh, was was reasonably predictable um, and we would have put up a very strong, very solid candidate who actually serves on one of the civic associations now. Um, and so we failed to participate and as a consequence, the PA got by default the, the by-election. Uh, but what Chesson also didn't, didn't tell you is that until about two days before that, he was a DA member contesting the nomination, that he phoned me and asked me, you know, would if I contest, can you guarantee me I'll get the nomination? Mm -hmm. I said, Chesson, it doesn't work like that. As a leader in my party, I don't have the power to influence the outcome. This election panel will do that. It's a democratic process. You have to go to the interview. He didn't like that. And so 
from contesting the nomination for one of the members of the branch executive, two days later he was the PA candidate. So um, a great deal of opportunism by young comrade Stienberg. Ah, you know, toch. But at least he got a job finally. Yes, by and how and how. But he won't keep it beyond the next local government election, which cannot come soon enough. So you you think if you if you have a by election tomorrow that the DA will win again? I'm confident, sir. I'm con- and see what the legacy that Chesson is is um, is creating the his relationship with many people I have spoken to. I know enough people in Kensington also to hear and see what he's doing and get feedback from the PR councillors who do work in the area, Councillor Limburg and Councillor mm. uh, Jansen. And uh, um, and he started his primary campaign promise when he and Gayton were, during the by-election, was that Chesney was going to take the tent away, notwithstanding that the PA is in coalition with the ANC across South Africa in, I don't know, 20, 30 places. Uh, and Gayton believes he has strong pull with the ANC. They've been unable to get the national minister to remove the tent they plonked down there during COVID, and the tent stands there still. So we are taking legal action as the city to try and force the national minister now to mm. remove the structure. I was in the meeting with Alan Windy when Aaron Mozzaledi said he was going to put the tent there. I told him it is a profoundly problematic idea and that he should get his eviction application in when he puts the tent down because I promise you a year later you're going to have to evict those people. Mm. And he said, no, 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 we have it under control. We'll, ex- we'll deport them if they don't. Whatever, there the tent stands, um, much to the um, aggravation of the local community. Mm. Um, and I'm afraid those two national departments who put it there have just uh, failed to take the action, necessary action to remove it. So we'll force them in the courts to do so. You spoke earlier today about the color identity politics is playing out in South Africa currently and we have the rise of the NCC, the PA, um, taking also bulk of DA colored supporters and we all know that DA needs colored votes in order for you to stay in provincial government. Do you see them anyway as a type of a, a, a party that will take away your support from the colored Muslim vote within the province? Yes and no. Um, so obviously they are getting some of um, some DA supporters. But if you look at the polling, it's very telling. Yeah. I can actually afterwards, if you have a moment, I'll show you the the polling. If you look at the, the percentage of the vote the ANC used to get, coloured vote the ANC used to get in this province, and you look at it now, the ANC's vote has collapsed amongst coloured voters. Yeah. It's almost non-existent. Across the province, they're down to about 8% um, amongst coloured voters. The remainder of their vote has cascaded to those other parties. So people who used to vote ANC, mm. in other words, where identity politics did play uh, uh, a, a, a role, have changed that vote to the PA, who played many of the same cards as the ANC would play. Mm. Um, if you look at the struggle heroes that they constantly punted during their previous election campaign, um, the ANC struggle heroes that they punted, they definitely tried to play into that market, mm. they tried to appeal to that market, and it's because they were seeing what we were seeing is that those ANC voters were disaffected, were looking for a new home. They're not going to start voting for the DA. Mm. Their association is different. Their historic attachment is different. They would consider the PA. And if you, so if you look at the ANC's uh, 28%, 30% of coloured vote, that has neatly collapsed down to 8%, and the remainder of it has cascaded or uh, moved over to the PA. In some cases, the NCC and good... Um, and in some cases, the EFF. Mm. So all those have become beneficiaries of that collapsing ANC vote. And that ANC in, in, in the Western Cape has no hope, no route to power anymore. They are devastated. 
uh, and other provinces will will join that that outcome. So they're not taking, I think, a lot of it, but they are taking vote. And there are places where we fail. There are places in local authorities where DA administration does not get the kind of outcomes that I would want to be associated like with. George, for example. George is a deeply problematic municipality. Mm. There's uh, all variety of issues which I'm not at liberty to discuss on air. I'm in party leadership. I'm also bound by certain uh, provisions, but certainly there are dynamics there that caused challenges and where we then get consequently punished by the voters. And that's as it should be. When you do not deliver, um, as Archbishop Tutu said about the ANC, you must, remove voters them. must remove mm. your vote. You cannot blindly vote for one party forever. You must vote for those who deliver services. And But what cannot happen is that that becomes a vote-buying exercise where mm. you're exchanging canned food and cash and other inducements. Those are not only, viol- not only are they immoral and, and anti-democratic, but they're actually violations of our electoral act. So there are things happening in these by-elections that are deeply problematic. Year in yesterday, during that voter registration weekend, that same PA leadership came and walked around with bodyguards with, a, with rifles, long rifles, which they're not legally allowed to carry in public. Also a violation of the Electoral Act. So we must make sure that if you're voting for another party, it is for the right reason, and that we're not, um, and that we're protecting voters from being manipulated into spaces mm. because of the vulnerability where they are in terms of income, um, and and uh, and marginalisation by the 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 within the economy of our nation at the moment. We also heard that many Muslim supporters or pro-Palestine um, supporters, and they will not vote for the DA because of your stance on the Israel-Palestine matter. Um, there was a very prominent auntie that sells flowers in Cape Town. It also said that she would rather work for the ANC than for the DA. Um, did you see her interview with Jordan a few days I later? I did see it, yeah. Where she reversed her position? Yeah. Mm. But still, um, aren't you scared for once again losing support? And how do you go back and tell the Palestinian supporters, listen, yeah, this is our actual view because there's a narrative being pushed around mm. about the actual view and not what the, the view of the idea actually is when it comes to policy. That's the exact position, yeah. So I spoke to a senior Muslim clergyman last week, and he I was surprised by his, by his insights into it. I was expecting some hostility from him mm. in the conversation, and he said, no, the DA's position is essentially the same as the ANC's position on this. You both punt a two-party state, you both wanted a ceasefire, even if you called it different things, and the, uh, he understands full well what the DA's position is. Mm. Emma Powell put out eight press statements, we put out infographics and other stuff. But what did happen is that the ANC's war room jumped on this um, and very rapidly started pushing with Al-Jamaa and others mm. a very aggressive position on it, which is just a distortion. It's not the DA's position. We're not anti-Palestine. When we had the opportunity to support the Palestinian soccer team coming here, national government didn't help them, but the provincial government helped with 100,000 rand. The city gave 400,000 rand and free use of the stadium. Um, Athlone, because Cape Town Stadium is unaffordable to activate. To activate Cape Town Stadium, you have to provide a whole transport plan which eats up all your resources. So it's only major events that can do the big stadium. And so the position is not fundamentally different from that held by every major government uh, around the, the world. Israel has a right to self-defense, but it does not have a right to translate that self-defense into, into a genocidal attack or uh, the levels of violence disproportionate mm, yeah. that it is currently doing. The current situation, in my mind, is indefensible. Yes. And I'm not ashamed to say that anybody with a bit of common sense can see it. Um, and I think Netanyahu, whose government, if they faced an election tomorrow, would be unseated. The yeah. polls show 
that over 70% of, of Israeli voters want Netanyahu out. Mm. His right-wing coalition is, is, is not, does not enjoy broad support and is leading Israel into a, a, a very uh, problematic situation. But then equally, Hamas has not had an election in, I don't know, is it eight years or 13 years? I forget. All in that. It is a long time since Hamas has faced an election. So you must also question what mandate they are governing with. And of course, that mm. mandate is unfortunately a, a substantial degree of coercion. I've also seen videos of, of public standing next to the road shouting at Hamas uh, to get out. Mm. So the problem here is with two illegitimate governments doing, um, or admin regimes, uh, driving... Um, the politics of hate and intolerance and again degenerating into in South Africa back into lagers of race and religion mm. is not what we must do. I see many people trying to drive this at the moment who are willing to drive a wedge between Muslims, Christians and others for the sake of scoring political points. Yeah. I think this is deeply disappointing and deeply regressive um, and anti-liberal and is not what we need to do. If you're committed to one nation for all, a South Africa that works for everybody, to the Rainbow Nation. These are not the narratives you drive. They're false to start with, but they're also divisive. And the end result of everybody driving divisive politics like this is that we end up in a group of racial lagers mm. with distrust. And you know that's what's happening. There are um, studies done that occasionally polls the level of tolerance between South Africans. We hit a, uh, we had a nice improvement after democracy. It got to a certain peak. And since then, we've actually been regressing as a nation in terms of tolerance. The tolerance indexes show that we are getting less and less tolerant of each other all the time. That is what happens when the economy mm. fails. You start blaming other people for your woes. If you're not blaming the Zimbabweans or the Malawians or somebody else, you're blaming somebody of a different race or somebody of a different religion. Uh, that's not uh, the way to a, a future South Africa that succeeds. On the issue of geopolitics, um, we are seeing that China's continuously trying to or if the, the current president may um, have said they will take back Taiwan, be with force as well. Do you believe that it's about time the world, first of all, agrees that Taiwan is sovereign and can govern themselves and accept both those two Chinas? And will the DA, if you come into power, recognize Taiwan as a sovereign state? So that's a matter probably well above my pay grade. I'm too blonde and too local to answer that um, in an intelligible way. But I can tell you that I attended a conference in Taiwan um, about a month, two months ago, mm. uh, at their expense and on their invitation uh, from the uh, Taiwanese um, government. And that during this, they did share a great deal of the challenges and frustrations they have with how the Chinese uh, government um, is approaching them and the threats to their to self-governance, and if I look at the scenario um, that that we find ourselves in in the Western Cape, um, I understand fully the desire for self-governance when what the values a uh, the Chinese government represent is not the democratic values to which the Taiwanese have become mm. uh, uh, accustomed. There was they've just concluded an election, and the candidate who um, who proposed a strong independence stance. Um, uh, won the mm. election, although with a split, uh, uh, it's not. I think with forty percent. Wasn't of the a vote. major majority like last. It's election, not a major yeah. majority. So whilst the majority of Taiwanese remember want independence, and that's all you can say about a people is to ask them what they want rather than what you think they should want. Uh, 
clearly it is a country that is that is conflicted on those views. Taiwanese will tell you there's major election interference from mm. the Chinese um, uh, capacity to manipulate in um, social media. Um, but uh, I can only tell you from from the conversations I had with people there that they are deeply committed. The people I spoke to to want to retain a democratic dispensation, to want to be able to choose their leaders, and to be able to speak freely about um, what their government is doing and what they think, uh, and not in a situation of state censorship. On the issue of slave governance, your yes. show probably would be um, on the wrong end of acceptable if you are were criticizing the state nationally. Mm. If you were in in China. Ja, Ian, dat is ook heel... Ik is ook een klein tronk geweest dat ik eigen doen het al. Because my thing is, um, if we look at what's happening, especially with us as colored people, how we're being treated by government in terms of being marginalized, in terms of not having input within the economy, is er niet tronk geweest in China. I don't think I would have been here. I would probably been dead already. So freedom of speech is important. Yeah. And may it never become um, eroded. The independence of the media has become vastly eroded in South Africa. That's a big yes, step back. And so, you know, Viva, the small community radio stations that uh, that are free thinking and speak out. Mm. On the issue of self-governance, Mr. JP, um, there's a movement in the Western Cape, Cape Independence, um, wanting to have a sovereign Western Cape government. I spoke to the leader, Mr. Craig. Um, he told me that the DA was with him in one, in one room where they said they will give you a referendum on Cape Independence. Mm. You went and said... After a couple of months from there, you will not give the referendum. Um, the mayor has spoken out, out against independence. The premier has spoken out against independence. I even believe the leader of the party spoke out against independence. Um, so what's your stance of the party on Cape Independence? And also, why did you lie to them as an organization? I don't think we lied. I think the circumstances just was that I've, I'm, I've sat in on many of those uh, meetings we've had with uh, Phil Craig mm-hmm. and the Freedom Front Plus and many other parties The so-called devolution working group. Mm. And I sat in on it because we were working on specific legislative outcomes, uh, collaborating on on draft legislation, because there's some very smart people working together there on ideas. But I think that they're beating the wrong drum. They're, they're, it's, independence is not legally achievable. Within our constitutional framework, there's no mechanism for independence. The much vaunted idea of a referendum will not achieve independence. Mm. If 80% of the people, and I think they may get a surprise by what people vote, if they were ever to vote in a referendum, if you asked every Western Cape person, do you want to be a separate country or not, they may be surprised by what people feel. But let's assume for the moment that such a referendum returned a result uh, that is pro-independence and said we want to secede from the rest of South Africa, we want to break away, we want to be our own country. There is no mechanism in our constitution to do so. All that there is is civil war. Nobody is advocating for civil war. Nobody is saying take up arms against your own government, against your own police force, against Mm. your own military. Uh, So there's no mechanism in law for us to do that. They quote some international precedents, uh, UN conventions and otherwise, where they believe that it is possible to advocate for independence, but without the consent of the South African government. And and the ANC is not going to consent to this. Um, You are not going to be able to legally and constitutionally create a separate Western Cape, except through force. And and that's not an option anybody can countenance. Uh, So then, if you can't do that, then look at the things you can do. What can you do? You can devolve power. 
You can achieve self-governance by doing what the Constitution originally envisaged us doing, and that is putting the maximum power in the hands of provincial and local government. Then it doesn't matter if the ANC gets crazy policy ideas and starts meandering down the, the wrong road. Mm. Because the amount of things they can influence and the degree to which they can destroy the country through state capture shrinks because the levers of power are in the hands elsewhere. Um, and that is what we should be advocating for. That is legal. It mm. is constitutional. So what Phil and them, the Provincial People's Bill that they focused on through the Freedom Front is essentially an identity politics bill. It says that coloured people, the people originally from here, uh, uh, the, the original Khoi people, mm. they are a separate nation and they are identifiable as a separate nation and therefore should govern themselves. It's essentially rooted in a sense of, of, of ethnic identity the DA's approach has been a constitutionalist approach. Yeah. We've said that the constitution provides for the devolution of power. We must fight for that devolution of power and we must control the things that matter to us in local and provincial government as the constitution federally allows for. Uh, on, in the constitution, Minister clearly has the power to devolve uh, the control of the police to provincial and local government. It says so explicitly in the constitution um, and he, has, he will, of course, decline to do so. At some point in court, we will have to try and force mm. him to do so. Uh, but that is the, the answer for us. Um, I do not hate or resent or regret the people I walked with on the street to the union buildings. <laughs> they are my brothers and sisters. We're all in this country together. Most of us want the same thing. We want to just be able to live in peace and prosperity um, without crime and with opportunities and with the opportunity to get a house and a job. And the people from Johannesburg and the Eastern Cape are not my enemies. They're not people um, I want to force out of my country. And how this debate gets really messy is then when you start to talk about who would be allowed to stay mm. and who would need to go. Mm. If you started asking, um, Craig, those questions, that's where you will see they become very evasive because then you have to start talking about who would then be a legitimate citizen of, of this place mm. and who not, how long you would have lived here. Um, and then you start getting into race uh, and so I think I don't think that that's a viable or meaningful route for us to debate. Devolution so of power is. Of that at hmm? all. So say clear of that. Rather say clear of keeping the Well, it's just not legally viable. It mm. might get a few people into positions, into into parliamentary seats. They will get, as a result, the referendum party, Cape Independence Party, CIP, and the, they will get a few votes, and it will get some of them seats in parliament. But none of that will translate into independence because it's not mm. legally and constitutionally possible. Okay, the final question to you because I do see our time is running out. Um, the DAD manifesto launched over the weekend, and you had like seven points which um, John and the party um, said is going to be important: create two million jobs, one and load shedding and water shedding, half the rate of violent crime, including murder and GBV, to abolish scattered deployment in favor of merit-based appointments, um, lift six million people out of poverty. And then also triple the, the number of grade four learners who can read for meaning. And the last one, they ensure quality healthcare for all, irrespective of economic status. Um, do you believe that this four, seven points mentioned right here will be able to get you enough votes to go into, into um, national government as the leading party, but also, um, or either enough votes to remove the ANC through the multi-party charter? I hope so. I hope people are voting with, with their heads and not their hearts. I hope people are looking at, at who is fighting for these issues and what, for instance, in Cape Town and the Western Cape, we achieve. we're far from perfect. We have major problems in our city. Mm. Crime continues to be a big problem. We have a murder rate of, of over 50 per 100,000. 
Um, even though we've managed to improve it uh, a little bit, it's far from at a tolerable level. Uh, we have poverty. Our Gini coefficient is smaller than, than some of the other provinces. We have less inequality, even though the ANC continue to parrot the, the false statement that there's greater inequality. The uh, international uh, research shows differently. Um, and on every one of the sort of measurable index, indices, though, you can see that we're getting better outcomes. We've managed to have more of an impact on load shedding than anywhere else. But Unemployment is the lowest than anywhere else. Load shedding only affects it in part of the city as well. because Sadly, yes, but not for our lack of trying. Jordan and his predecessors, a previous mayor and our administration has been trying to get control of ESCOM's infrastructure from them. I have sat in meetings with them where we, where we are driving the attempt to take over the infrastructure and the negotiations are about they are largely willing to do so. The negotiation is how much they want us to pay for that infrastructure. We don't want to pay for it. We say hand over the infrastructure. You've got a huge maintenance backlog. We'll manage that maintenance backlog. We'll manage your, all your broken infrastructure, which is going to cost us a fortune of money. Mm. We're taking on a big burden with very little advantage. Um, they will likely uh, want compensation for that. Those talks continue. I'm optimistic that that's going to get to a positive outcome because it sounded to me from the two meetings that I got to attend that it was heading in the right direction and that we'll be able to take over all the infrastructure that ESCOM is sitting on and make all the cities, all the parts of the city, uh, city supplied. Uh, but on load shedding, we've had a positive impact. On unemployment, we have the lowest unemployment rate. Quarter on quarter, we are the only ones, only province very often, or one of the only ones that has consistently been able to reduce our unemployment. We're very close to that magic, that very significant 20% level mm. below which it signifies that your city is really on the right track. The rest of South Africa continues to edge in the wrong direction. Where we are creating jobs is here in the Western Cape. On crime, we have had the same impact. LEAP and other interventions has meant that we've been tracking in the opposite direction from where the rest of the country is tracking. On smaller things, but still important, if I look at the number of drug treatment facilities that we've rolled out, we have almost as many in Cape Town as all the rest of the metros combined. Uh, there are many healthy indicators that shows that the Western Cape is on the right track. And that the proof is in the pudding. If you look at this immigration figures, it shows you where people are moving to um, and the, the, the amount of immigration towards Cape Town and the Western Cape uh, and I get to speak to many people uh, in my day-to-day -day work, uh, people who have recently semigrated. And when you ask them why their explanations, members of Metropolis who have moved from Johannesburg to here, mm -hmm. if I ask them why the answers they give me shows me that they are thinking in the same line as us. And they are not white. They are often not coloured either. They are people of all different races who are coming to the same conclusion as about 68% of our population we're moving in the wrong direction. Okay. Um, any final words on your side as we end of this interview? Um, you have asked me quite a bit of uh, governance, but also quite a bit of political. I think this is the most political interview I've done in many years. Um, and I'm, in fact, not accustomed to answering political questions. I'm so used to just dealing with the mm. City of Cape Town administration issues. But... Uh, I must say I'm encouraged by the, the nature of your questions. Um, and I hope that as many people out there are thinking about these things rationally and sanely and taking very careful stock of where we succeed in South Africa and where we're failing and what we need to do to change that. Uh, I don't want to belabor the point too much, but I, it bears repeating that I don't know 
what South Africa looks like in 2029. You can say, okay, another five years of ANC, we've had them for 30, what is 35? Mm. It's a big difference and because the collapse is exponential and I don't know how deep that hole is that we have to dig ourselves out of in 29. So I hope that, that people uh, uh, understand what is at stake. This is a very, very important election for us. And then just on, a, on back to the safety and security hat, I want to say that you have some amazing neighborhood watches in um, Yestrover mm. that I have had the privilege to walk and patrol with them on some occasions. Um, we have in the past tried to recruit neighborhood watch members into our law enforcement auxiliary service. That has been challenging because we have not had uh, the capacity in our training college to put them through. And then LEAP came and we had to train all the LEAP members, which put the whole reserve service on the back burner. That is fixed now. And I do just want to encourage the neighborhood watch members who are listening, please apply for the auxiliary service. We do want to train up as many people, especially young people, to become law enforcement reservists. It's a foot in the door for full-time employment. Mm. So if in the past you applied and didn't get somewhere, uh, please don't be um, discouraged. Please reapply now. We have the capacity to train. We're training around 280 reservists this year. Um, and it's a great way to get your foot in the, in the door for employment and to get leverage to, um, to get a qualification that you can travel with across South Africa as a recognized uh, uh, qualification uh, as a peace officer. And so uh, just that encouragement. We're doing something very cool with the neighborhood watches around the middle of this year when we will roll out communications technology to them, which will allow them all to be in much closer contact and direct contact with our control room. Mm. We really will make the neighborhood watch an extension of the city and we will put ourselves at their um, at their service much more effectively as a partner uh, as opposed to the mechanisms we have at the moment and that will also be the time at which we then can start donating these many cell phones that errand drivers have donated to the city mm. which we've impounded and haven't been collected that's when we will start distributing those cell phones. It'll be after the election, so nobody can accuse me of coping <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. Well, JP, thank you once again for coming um, to the studio. Listeners, thank you for watching. Until next time, be safe, take care. God bless you all. Bye-bye. Okay, we are done. Thank you, sir. You are tuned into the leading internet radio station in the Mother City. Oh, I'm back. Yo. I'm your seven. I'm William Seven Z. Ambuyo, 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 ambu
Hey! 